Well, as we get back into chapter six, you'll remember last week that Jeff talked about Jesus selecting his men. He went up on a mountain and he selected 12 guys. And there were lots of people that knew Jesus, were following Jesus, were around Jesus, were coming to Jesus. But he wanted to establish this core of community. And his strategy was, and if you just want to jot down a great book, Master Plan of Evangelism, man, that is a classic. But it talks about Jesus really focusing on a few to reach the many. And that actually becomes a template for us. When you think about ministry, when you think about doing what Jesus called you to do, that's the strategy. Reach a few, replicate yourself so that they might be able to do the same with others. That's how spiritual multiplication takes place. So here we are, Jesus has his men. And in verse 17 of chapter six, he's coming down and he is going to begin to speak, as we'll see in just a second. Let's look at verse 17. It says, Jesus came down with them, his 12, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. So in some ways up to this point, Luke has been sort of putting all of the pieces in place. So that from this point forward, we're going to be walking with Jesus in ministry with his men to these people all the way to the cross. We have a Messiah King. Remember that was established in his identity and the verification or authentication of who he was. He now has apostles, which it's interesting. They're called, that means sent ones, but, but they're not quite sent yet that we're getting there. There is this massive gathering of people. It's like Jesus is somewhat of a celebrity and it's gonna be interesting how he speaks to this crowd. He's not trying to build a following in terms of like what we might think of as a following. He is still doing authenticating signs. Everything that he does supernaturally reminds everybody that he's different than anybody that has come before him. And now then today we're gonna come to really his first formal message. You know, we've, we've read several times now up to this point that Jesus was teaching. He was teaching in the synagogue. He was teaching in this gathering and that and whatever. So uh, have you ever wondered what was he teaching? You know, we, we kind of got these punchy little interactions where he was correcting perhaps some people around him, but we just haven't quite gotten that content yet. Well, we're gonna get it today. And this is what we're calling the kingdom foundation. Jesus is the king of a kingdom. And that kingdom is invading earth. That means that there's another kingdom 
and these two kingdoms are gonna come into conflict with one another. That's what the rest of this gospel is gonna be about, is the conflict between these two kingdoms. What we're gonna look at today is the foundation. It's known as, uh, it's actually known as a couple of things. It's known by many as the Sermon on the Plain because of the reference to him coming down to a level place. But obviously it's very similar to another sermon that's recorded in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, right? Now, it seems to me, based upon topography, he here is coming down from a mountain, right? And it's a pretty hilly terrain around there. So I'm not sure that it's literally a plain. It may be more of a plateau, kind of like the Cumberland Plateau, right? So it doesn't really matter. The bigger question is, is this the same sermon that Matthew records in uh, chapters five through seven of his gospel? Um, Let me give you some comparisons between these two. In Luke six, the sermon is verses 20 to 49, which is just 30 verses. In Matthew, it's chapters five through seven, it's 137 verses. So there is a significant difference just in the amount of content. Now, we don't assume that if a gospel writer recorded a sermon that they literally got every single word that came out of Jesus' mouth. They are delivering, led by the Holy Spirit, whatever it is from that sermon that we needed to receive um, as readers. Both of these sermons contain beatitudes, which are really just statements of good fortune or favor. Luke, however, adds woes. We're gonna get into those today, which is kind of interesting. Both of these sermons were preceded by a call. In in Luke, we're told about the call of the apostles where he literally selects the 12 and says, you guys are my guys. In Matthew, uh, it's really more of just some incidental calls of individuals who would one day be apostles. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Luke is focused on Gentiles. Matthew is focused on Jews. That is a different uh, focus for both of those writers. And so what we find in these sermons really does appeal to those two audiences. So all in all, Both of these could be from one message, from one sermon that was given on a level place near a mountain. It could be that these could come from two different uh, places. It could be that um, he gave this sermon on multiple occasions to different audiences in different places. And, you know, his message isn't like it's going to be changing every time, right? He is bringing a message of the kingdom, So both of these, this is an interesting thing for both of these audiences, conclude with some parables. This is that teaching part. And this also really helps us understand the urgency of what he is saying to these people. This isn't just kind of for information's sake so that these people will be smarter people and better able to navigate life and all that kind of stuff. This is literally spiritually life 
and death. Listen to Luke 6, 47 through 49. So this is the end of the sermon. I'm not gonna teach this today. Phil is actually gonna teach this in four weeks, but I want us to read this to help us get our head in the right space to go into what we're gonna study today. So Luke 6, 47 through 49. Everyone, Jesus says, who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. So keep in mind, there is a gigantic crowd. Why are these people coming to Jesus? It's said that they were coming to hear him teach and to be healed. I kind of think it may have been more about the healing than the hearing. I think Jesus thought that too. So listen to what he says about that. I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna show you what it's like for a person to not only hear my words, but do them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. It seems that it's possible to be healed of diseases as what took place here, cured of unclean spirits. It's possible to have those things and still be spiritually ruined. And so Jesus wants them to listen and then obey, to follow through on what he's saying. Now, speaking of foundations, this whole thing is gonna be a foundation for everything else that follows. Um, three years ago, we did the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. So if you want to go back, you could actually listen to that series and compare it to this one. But I made a statement there I want to make again, just to help us understand the significance of foundations. Defects in a foundation below ground become devastating failures in what is built above ground. And what is true of a building is true of your life. So whatever there is down in the ground, kind of out of visibility, that's underneath the rest of your life, if, if that isn't well built, if it's not well grounded, then it's gonna cause some serious problems above ground. With that in mind, I, I heard a quote this week uh, attributed to Zig Ziglar. This is, this is awesome. If you are not willing to learn no one can help you. If you are determined to learn, no one can stop you. Very encouraging. So let's learn from Jesus, from this sermon, which is a foundational explanation of this kingdom that he is establishing. And these blessings and woes that we're about to encounter, those provide a little bit of a framework. If you literally think about putting down a foundation, right? You first, you, you build the frame and then you drop the concrete into the frame. So that's what this is. This is the framework for that. And here are some things. These are vital for us to understand if we're going to get what it is Jesus is delivering. God's kingdom is in direct opposition to the kingdom of this world. Make no mistake, 
These two kingdoms are always at war, all of the time, never take a break, no ceasefires, no surrenders, no nothing. Constant conflict. God's kingdom will not stop short of absolute dominion. Jesus didn't come to just get a little piece of property for himself. He literally is going after world dominion and he will have it someday. The values of God's kingdom are utterly foreign to those of the world. And I'll tell you what really hit me this week as I was studying this is I'd like to think that I get the values of God's kingdom and that I embrace those for myself. I, I, I really want to believe that. And I think that is true to a large degree. But, but what really hit me as I was preparing this week is there, because I am who I am, I'm a flawed, uh, frail, limited, mortal human being. There have to be some effects of the world's kingdom on me that I'm not quite aware of, that I need God to show me, I need God to change in me. So we, we really need to come with great humility to this and just say, you know, wherever it is, God, that I have embraced the world's kingdom values over your kingdom values, show me what that is and help me to change. The world system will tolerate Christian values as long as those values don't infringe upon personal autonomy. Have you ever experienced that? But the minute that it does, the fight is on. And I want you to hear this, that isn't just out there, it's in you. You know, in us, there's this thing in us that wants things our way. And God's kingdom doesn't do that. That's not how it works. Jesus said, I'm gonna have it my way. And you can either align yourself with that, conform yourself to that, surrender to that, or you can fight against it. And you can imagine one way is a lot more comfortable than the other. So A.B. Bruce says this to, to sort of set up where we're heading with this sermon. Jesus did more than proclaim the arrival of the kingdom. He did that, but he did more than that. He explained the nature of the divine kingdom. He described the character of its citizens and he differentiated between genuine and bogus members of the holy community of faith. That's a great book, by the way, as well, just talking about what Jesus did in training his men. Uh, Michael Wilcock, he's a, a commentator on the Gospel of Luke. He says this, in the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. Again, really emphasizing this conflict. They will prize what the world calls pitiable or foolish, folly, and they will suspect what the world thinks is desirable. So if, if you're really in tune with the kingdom that Jesus is going to present today, it will automatically put you at odds with the ideas, the values, the principles, all of that of the world. It just automatically puts you at odds with that. Tim Keller 
uh, describes these two kingdoms. It's brilliant. He says there's an upside down kingdom and a right side up kingdom. Now, when you hear that, I would imagine you would think, well, Christianity, that's the right side up. But what he is saying is that in their day, the right side up kingdom was the world's kingdom. And the reason it was the right side up is because it made perfect sense to everybody naturally. You know, there's just a way that we just grow up thinking this is the way the world works. This is the way you naturally do things. Our flesh operates really well in that kingdom. Christianity flips everything upside down on its head. It's an upside down kingdom. It doesn't make sense. It looks like foolishness to us and the rest of the world in our natural condition. So what Jesus is presenting here is an upside down kingdom and he is confronting this right side up kingdom that exists all around him. So right side up makes perfect sense to the natural mind, the unredeemed instincts in us and in the world. And it emerges from our bent toward things like self-protection, self-promotion, self-absorption. Notice the repeated word there, self. Like the right side up kingdom is all about me. Me taking care of me. The upside down kingdom does just the opposite. It exposes and confronts our natural inclinations. It rubs against those times when we want to demand things to be our way. It calls us to radical, revolutionary ideas like consider someone else more important than yourself. Like that's just crazy upside down thinking. Why would anybody do that? And obviously it gets a lot more uh, intense than that. So let's look at these two kingdoms. We're gonna start with, because Luke did, the upside down kingdom and it's all around blessing, beginning in verse 20. So Jesus has come down. It says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, here's the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day when all that stuff's happening to you. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Does that sound upside down to you? Now, Jesus is not teaching that poverty and hunger and sorrow and persecution are blessings in and of themselves. In other words, those aren't things that we're supposed to go pursue, that those all by themselves are really good things. Those are actually consequences of a fallen world that's under a curse. 
We know that because those are the very things that Jesus addressed when, remember when he's doing healing and when he's ministering to people, he's dealing with those things in their life. So the blessing isn't just simply having those effects on you. It's having the, the goodness of God despite all of those circumstances. There is something that supersedes those realities of poverty and hunger, sadness and rejection. The promise here is of eventual and complete reversal. And knowing that, believing that, trusting in that, that's where the blessing is found. It would allow you to experience those things with peace and contentment and even joy because you know it isn't forever. And you know that there's something better that does await later. And then that actually affects your life in the moment. It's interesting, there's, there's a lot of heart stuff here. I don't know that we have enough time to get into all of it, but I'm gonna trust that the Holy Spirit is gonna be doing that heart work in you as he has been doing in me. Let's go through these four words. Let's understand what they mean and then let's look at the reversal that Jesus describes. So first he says, blessed are the poor. And that word isn't just like being monetarily poor. That is a broad description of a condition in life. And the word that really stood out to me when I thought about that was vulnerable. Like think about the poor. Life literally just happens to them. They have very little control. They're often defenseless. They are often oppressed because they can't take up for themselves. They don't have the resources to mount a defense against the attacks of the world. So they're isolated, they're, uh, they're vulnerable, and yet look what Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of God. So just imagine a person that is experiencing poverty and the threat of that knowing that they belong to a kingdom that is greater than anything this world could ever create. There's some reassurance in that. It doesn't necessarily make the difficulties of poverty go away, but it does help them find some stability in their hearts, just how they face their circumstances. Contrary to the way of the world, that which is best isn't out of reach of those who are the least. According to the kingdom of God and its values, its orientation. And the poor often seem more likely to recognize and receive things that are actually best. So poor, hungry. This speaks to deficiency. Just not having enough of whatever it might be. Certainly there can be a physical hunger, but that's a picture of a much greater need. Now, have you heard us make, make the statement around here, God will always give you what you need to do what he's called you to do? Okay, so that is a general statement of wisdom. It's the idea that 
even in great need, you will have what you need to do what God's called you to do. It may be incredibly difficult. You may be stretched far beyond what you ever imagined, but God will give you what you need in that moment. Now we live in a broken world. We are mortal. Life eventually comes to an end. So that is where that statement uh, is, is a general truth, right? I could, it's possible for me to die of starvation. Uh, think about Christians around the world who are imprisoned and starved and eventually they die. They're martyrs for their faith. Did God give them what they needed to do what he called them to do? I have to assume that he did. I have to assume that he sustained their life as long as they needed to live their life in the kingdom of God in this context. And at some point that came to an end and their role in this world was completed. Jesus says those who are hungry, those who are deficient, you shall be satisfied. Now notice this, in the first uh, instance, blessed are the poor, yours is present tense, the kingdom of God. Even though it's an invisible kingdom, even though there's a lot about it that's mysterious and hard to kind of get our arms around, it's yours now. Those who are hungry, you shall be satisfied, pointing their attention forward to a day when hunger will be no more. There will be no such thing as deficiency. Blessed are those who weep. This is the idea of affliction. And this is where it, it does sound a little bit foolish to just our worldly ears. You shall laugh. That's hard to believe when you're in the midst of incredible loss and hardship. Many of us attended a funeral recently. And uh, it was pretty amazing to me that there was laughter. That was just so good for my soul. It was this little glimpse that there will be a day when there won't be any tears. Andrew Peterson sang a song called You're Always Good. I don't know how you say that if you don't believe that a day will come when you'll laugh. There's this line in his song. He says, this heartache is moving me closer than joy ever could. Man, that is an upside down kingdom because that doesn't make sense in a world that is driven by ease and comfort and satisfaction and power and all that stuff. Blessed are those who weep. One day they're gonna laugh. And then lastly, blessed are those who are rejected. That's the idea of exclusion. And Jesus points our attention when we are being opposed by the world, he points our attention to our reward. That's actually where we're gonna go at the end of our Better Way series is to really think it, that's important. Uh, we can be a little bit 
resistant to thinking about rewards as motivation, but Jesus puts it out there all the time. He says that's a great place to look. So let me sum up this upside down kingdom. Blessed are you, and he is speaking to those in that crowd who are Christ followers. This isn't just a massive like universalism, everybody counts, everybody gets it, all that kind of stuff. It's blessed are you who are Christ followers despite being poor, hungry, sad, and persecuted. And you're blessed because you are assured God's infinite personal favor. Unconditional, totally rooted in grace. You didn't do anything to deserve it and you can't do anything to lose it. You're blessed in the upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ. And why to that he says rejoice in your day of suffering and I mentioned this does sound like folly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul is writing about the cross and here's what he says. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing in the right side up world. But to us who are being saved in the upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God. It is what allows us to live well regardless of our circumstances. Well, let's look quickly at the right side up kingdom, the kingdom of this world. It is natural, it is fleshly. We don't have to try and have this kind of perspective. It just comes to us as naturally as breathing. Here's what Jesus says to those who would have a right side up worldly mentality. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, similar to the first set of four, that there isn't something objectively wrong about those conditions. They happen, right, in a, in a fallen world. There's nothing necessarily or inherently sinful about being rich, about being full, about laughing, and about having a good reputation. Those things all by themselves, there's nothing wrong with those, but that's not what this is talking about. Jesus is trying to get at those things having the highest priority in life. That, that those are essentially your God. So, and that's how it's gonna work out. As we go through these four words, I want you to notice what they're pointing to. To be rich that's all about security. And don't we all struggle with that? Don't we look at our stuff? And if we've got a lot of it, we kind of feel better. We kind of sit back. It's like, I'm, man, life is good. Well, is it good because you got a bunch of stuff? Or is it be good because you are loved by a gracious, merciful God? If your life is secure, if it's 
good because you got a lot of stuff. Jesus says, whoa. That word speaks of horror, disaster, calamity. Like we should shudder at the idea that we would find our security in our stuff. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. The consequence, you've received your consolation, which literally just means whatever stuff you got in this life, if that's where you're placing your hope, that's all you get. Nothing more. So, do you want that over the riches of eternity? You see how that, that puts things in perspective? So hard to have that perspective in a moment. But that's where Jesus is trying to take us. Those who are full, the allure there is comfort, ease, the easy button. <laughs> that's what we want day in. Don't, don't we just want an easy life? And isn't there so much about life that isn't easy, that's very hard? But if our demand is for ease and comfort, then we're gonna be hungry. We're gonna find ourselves hungry. Going back to the other four, deficient all of the time. Because no amount of stuff in this world is ever gonna satisfy you and I. It doesn't provide security and it doesn't provide satisfaction. Laughing, that word literally means to gloat. So the idea here is woe to those who their focus is on, it's all about success. It's about winning. It's about being better than everybody else. It's about being at the top of the pile and always having things your way. It's being a winner. Woe to those who have to win all the time. If that's you, you're gonna mourn and weep. Because, I mean, what if you did win throughout all of this life and then get to the end of it and then lose for eternity? That, that's what Jesus has in mind here. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to win all the time and then lose his soul? You see how that just clarifies things? It breaks, that's the kingdom of God breaking through into the kingdom of this world and helping us see things for how they really are. Lastly, woe to those who are revered. Now there's nothing wrong with having a good reputation, but if your reputation is the best that you've got, if that's all you've got, whoa, disaster, calamity. You resemble false prophets because they had a great reputation. People thought great things about them. They oohed and odd like they were celebrities. 
but they were deceivers. These serve as a warning and a call of repentance to those who may be tempted to trust too greatly in wealth, comfort, success, and popularity. And I tell you, this is sobering. If you demand those things, if, if that is what makes life good for you, then Jesus is saying, that's all you're gonna get. You can have it, but it's not gonna look like much when you get to the end of your days. Summary for the right side up kingdom. And I know this is a strong word, but I, I think it's to, to shake us, to wake us up. Doomed are you who disregard Christ despite having the best this world can offer because a day is coming when you will lose all that you have accumulated and be left with nothing but yourself. That's the contrast. And some great questions to ask. I'm asking this. How do I respond when I don't get what I want? How do I respond when I lose what I have? See, those are the two things here. If you're in poverty and you're all about want, what do you do when you don't get it? But what if you have a lot and then you lose some of it? How do you respond to that in here? How's your disposition? How's your attitude? I want to finish with this. Words from Revelation 3, 15 through 18. This is Jesus writing to the church of Laodicea. These are familiar words, but hear them in the context of blessings and woes. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here it is. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If that's you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see blessing. That's what God wants for you. Blessing that goes way beyond the kingdom of this world. We sense no great loss when we give up lesser things to gain the greatest things. And I will finish with a quote from Jim Elliott. I know you've heard it perhaps a hundred times. Maybe it's something we ought to read every week. I'm not equating it with Bible, but man, it's a good statement. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.